Good morning. The title of this morning's message is What About Loving Ourselves? Question mark. This morning I want to talk to you about loving yourself. But I'm going to take the long way around to get to the final message of loving ourselves. I'm sort of piggybacking off of my last message. The last time I ministered, we looked at the truth that our Heavenly Father has given us the grace, the divine enablement, the fruit of temperance which is simply the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to say no to our flesh-headed programming regarding worldly lusts and physical desires. In that message, I proposed that it is our Father's agape love for us and our true identity that is our true motivation for letting the Holy Spirit lead us into loving and caring for our bodies as God's precious possessions. And we can see the Apostle Paul encouraging believers to learn to live this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. I have it in the Passion Translation. Have you forgotten that your body is now the sacred temple of the Spirit of Holiness who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself any longer. For the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside your sanctuary. You were God's expensive purchase paid for with tears of blood. So by all means then, use your body to bring glory to God. Now, this is not a demand from God for us to produce fruit (laughs) or glory. (laughs) It is an encouragement that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to manifest the reality of God's presence in us through our lifestyle choices. I especially like this verse in the Weymouth translation which says this, verse 20, And you are not your own, for you have been redeemed at infinite cost. Therefore, glorify or manifest God in and through your bodies. I like this translation because it uses the word redeemed, which gives us a better understanding of the Apostle Paul's point, which is that we were bought And that's the word the King James uses. We were bought out of a slave market of sin. Sin was our former master. But now, Jesus has paid the purchase price, the infinite cost necessary for us to be free, completely free from the indwelling power and dominion of sin. So, as new creations, there is no sin in us. We are not sinners. (laughs) Jesus very specifically tells us throughout the New Testament, we are something called a saint, a holy one. We are no longer sinners. And God and sin do not cohabitate in our spirit. Instead, the Holy Spirit and our spirit are fused together into one spirit. We are both his spiritual and his physical sanctuary. And the Holy Spirit provides us with his fruit, thank you, Jesus, so that we can express who we really are as one spirit in Christ, in and through our physical bodies and our lifestyle choices. Now, according to the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the word redeem means this, to purchase back, to ransom, to liberate or rescue from captivity or bondage, or from any obligation or liability, to be suffered or to be forfeited by paying 
and equivalent. As to redeem prisoners or captured goods, means to redeem as a pledge. God owns all of mankind through creation. And God never gave mankind to Satan. We were never his. <laughs> Instead, Satan basically tricked Adam and Eve into choosing the power of sin and death through their own unbelief and disobedience. They chose to let Mr. Sin be their governor instead of their loving father. Through their sinful action, they activated the power of the law of sin and death. They activated it in themselves and they activated it in our world. And they and all of humanity became slaves to the power and dominion from indwelling sin. And they had no power to free themselves from their new governor, who was not very nice, <laughs> Mr. Sin. <laughs> and the power of Mr. Sin took dominion over them from within and governed and influenced their thinking and believing. So God himself is Mr. Love. And Mr. Love took on the responsibility to provide redemption for all mankind by paying the purchase price to buy us out from under the power of Mr. Sin and to restore us to where Mr. Love designed for us to be, living as one with him in his presence and goodness and bearing our true identity as dearly loved sons of God. The purchase price to be paid on our behalf was death. But no human being could physically die and then be raised to life again because of the law. The law of sin and death. <laughs> the sin brought death and you stayed dead. <laughs> the power of Mr. Sin would hold them permanently in the power of death with no rescue. So Jesus took our legal responsibility for all sin, for all humanity, bearing it bodily into death, where he completely defeated it. And since he was a completely righteous human being, death didn't have the power to hold him, because he was sinless. And because he was sinless, Mr. Sin didn't have anything to grab onto <laughs> to be able to hold him into death, because the law always works. Sin brings forth death. Jesus' blood is the only blood that has the eternal ability to utterly destroy the power of Mr. Sin. And we can see this in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. And again, I have it for you in the Passion Translation. But now the Anointed One has become the King Priest of every wonderful thing that has come. For he serves in a greater, more perfectly heavenly tabernacle, not made by men. And he has entered once and forever. I love that. I wish I had known that all those years. I was begging God to remove my sin. He entered once. Jesus is not dealing with our sins anymore. He entered once and forever into the holiest sanctuary of all, not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but with the sacred blood of his own sacrifice, his sinless blood. And he alone has made our salvation secure forever. I also wish I had known that for a long time. <laughs> I lived constantly in fear of losing my salvation because of my lack of perfection. 
I never knew who I really was. I never knew what he had really done. Verse 13. Under the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those that were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities. This is exactly how most of the church treats the blood of Jesus, as if it has to be reapplied, reapplied, reapplied. Oh, you're dirty today. Reapply. <laughs> no. It's a once forever blood. It has eternal effect. It never loses its power. We don't have to reapply. <laughs> Verse 14. <laughs> Yet how much more will the sacred blood of the Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences? For by the power of the eternal spirit, he hath offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice that now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. The eternal and sacred blood of Jesus has infinite value. In other words, the value and effectiveness of his blood never has an end. It never has a limit. It is without limit. It is infinite. Now, I bring this up because of the definition of redeemed that says the one redeeming someone out from the power of another pays an equivalent in value of what the prisoner or captive is worth to the original owner. So God, Mr. Love, is both the original owner and the redeemer, paying the sin debt that the prisoner or captive cannot pay. And the debt is death. It's the law, the law of sin and death. <laughs> now, the captive can and will certainly die. But his death would only be justice, not mercy, and certainly not redemption. Because death, sin only brings forth death. There's no way out. The death of the captive would only be the fulfillment of the law that Adam and Eve started. Sin brings forth death. <laughs> and the captive would remain estranged from Mr. Love and continue in an existence of eternal captivity. And that's not what our Father wants for us or for anyone else. So, because of our Father's great love for us, He gave us His only unique Son to take our place and to pay our due payment, which was death. Our Father and our Jesus were willing to pay an infinite price through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus in order for us to be rescued from the captivity of Mr. Sin. <laughs> and to be restored to our Father's original plan for us as dearly loved, ruling and reigning sons of God. So as our redeemers, both our Father and our Jesus, have revealed to us our true value to them by giving themselves in exchange for our freedom and righteousness. Now, I know this sounds a little bit crazy, but God the Father loves us and values us just as much as he loves and values Jesus. We know that because that's the equivalent price that he paid. <laughs> and this is kind of mind-blowing too. Jesus loves the Father and values him the same way he loves and values us. When I first wrote that, I thought, is that really true? <laughs> Does Jesus really value us the same way he values his Father? 
And, and the Lord's like, think about it. They're all one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They all have infinite love. They all have infinite value. Therefore, if they're going to give themselves on our behalf, then they have bestowed on us the same infinite love and infinite value that they possess. If we had any clue <laughs> how valuable we are, we would be very impressed. <laughs> so we have infinite value and infinite love because together our Father and our Jesus gave themselves on our behalf in order to make us free from Mr. Sin and from the power of death. And we can see this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. To wit, that God, our Father, was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. In other words, our Father's not mad. <laughs> he has provided the reconciliation. He has made himself our friend. He and Jesus came in the likeness of our humanity to save and rescue and deliver us and all of mankind from the power of Mr. Sin, who brings death. And that's exactly what they did through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And all we have to do to enter into this freedom is believe it and receive it through our Lord Jesus. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled, be made friendly to God our Father. Verse 21. For he, the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What I want you to see in these scriptures is that Jesus is our sin bearer. Jesus was never sinful. He was never literally sin. He was the offering for sin. One commentator that I read years ago said that it was a common Jewish idiom to call the lamb that was ready for sacrifice sin, meaning that the legal responsibility for sin had already been transferred to the lamb. Think about it. They had to lay their hands on their little lammy and say, these are my sins. And God counted their guilt being transferred to the lamb. It's guilty. It's now sinful, if you will. <laughs> it's a perfect picture of us understanding what happened when Jesus, our lamb, took our sin. He was the sin bearer. And just like the little lammy, who was perfectly innocent, <laughs> the innocence of the lamb was transferred to the worshiper. So we have a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. When you confessed your sin over it, it was counted as transferred. Now the thing is sin for you. It's sin personified. It's a Mr. Sin. <laughs> Even though it's still a sweet little lamb, it has taken the guilt. And therefore, it will take the punishment or the consequence of death. Before they killed it, they called it the sin. So that they would say, oh, this is what sin produces. <laughs> sin produces death. Don't want sin. Still true for us. Not spiritually speaking, but uh, in how it works out in our life. The law of sin and death is still here. <laughs> and you can activate it. <laughs> but it doesn't do 
what it used to do. When you think of the power of death, it's the power under the curse. God was always trying to keep those Israelites out from underneath the power of the curse. How? One, regulations. Didn't keep them from sinning. (laughs) They needed a way to pay their sin and not die. And so that's what God provided them. He gave them a way for their sin to be removed from them. In the same way, our Jesus became sin. And a lot of people want to make Jesus sinful on the cross. Jesus was never sinful. He was a sin bearer. The Father imputed all the legal responsibility for sin to Jesus physically. And then he, Jesus, took it all as the sinless lamb, the sinless lamb of God, into death. And then the Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, proving (laughs) that he was, in fact, sinless, because sin will keep you dead. (laughs) Jesus could not rise from the dead if he had sin. That's why we needed a sinless bearer, somebody who could triumph over this law called sin and death. We need somebody who could go into death and rise again. And they had to be sinless in order to do that. Our Jesus is and was always sinless, but he was like the little lammies who bore the sin away on our behalf. His blood sacrifice was completely sufficient to render Jesus' worshipers completely righteous and free from all the indwelling power of sin and death. We can see this truth in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1 which says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I left this in here so I could talk about it, (laughs) but the best scholars and the best manuscripts says this last half doesn't belong there. They say what Paul wrote is, There is therefore now no condemnation. What is condemnation? It is a sentence to death. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, period. (laughs) But somebody wanted to help. (laughs) People will misunderstand. (laughs) And so they added part of verse 4 to this verse. And the scholars are very well aware that that is exactly what happened. But I left it in here because I want to see how we could understand it. Who walk not after the flesh. What is flesh? Well, what we're going to see here pretty quick is flesh is really sin nature. We don't have one. (laughs) Now, we have a flesh head. We have normal natural thinking. We have help from Satan. (laughs) But we don't have sin in us anymore because God does not cohabitate with sin. Okay, so if we understand that what he's talking about is not our physical flesh and our mistakes and failures. He's talking about nature, who walk not after a sinful nature, but after what? Our new nature, which is one spirit with the living God. So that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, Mr. Sin, who used to live in us, died. He was condemned to death. When Jesus came in and he gave us his new life and his new nature, 
Mr. Sin no longer lives in us anywhere. The nature of sin died. Jesus took it into death. <laughs> Verse 3, for what the law could not do, what was it it could not do? Could not make the Israelites righteous on the inside. It couldn't change them. <laughs> they kept messing up all the time because they had a sin nature. Mr. Sin lived inside. So it didn't matter how hard they tried to overcome Mr. Sin, he was still there. And that was the problem with the law. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through flesh, not physical flesh, indwelling flesh. It was weak through flesh, the unregenerated nature. But God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's why I like the, that Paul did this. Jesus never became sinful flesh. <laughs> he never had a flesh nature. He had never had a guilty body. Jesus was sinless, body, soul, and spirit. So Paul makes it really quite apparent. There is no sin in Jesus, and there never was. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is humanity. Jesus was completely human, but Mr. Sin did not live in Jesus. And for sin, in other words, as a sin bearer, condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus' physical body. That's why it's so hard to understand, because they use the same words for different understandings. So, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for a sin offering. We just saw that that's what they called little lammies. And that's what the author here is talking about. Jesus didn't become sinful in any way, shape, or form. He was just like the innocent little lambs in the old covenant. He never became sin itself because sin has to go into death and not rise. Jesus was a sin bearer. He was the innocent lamb. And for an offering, condemned sin in Jesus' physical body. God condemns sin. He sentenced Mr. Sin to death in the flesh of Jesus, in his physical body. Verse 4. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And some translations say the righteous requirement. What was the righteous requirement? Sin must die. Period. That's the law. This righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. Hallelujah. That means Mr. Sin is dead. It's a law. <laughs> the righteous requirement has been fulfilled in me. Sin has died, and it can't be revived. <laughs> the Mr. Sin that used to live in us received the righteous requirement that the law demanded that it receive, which was death. And then he says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Again, what is he talking about? <laughs> He's talking about nature. Paul's talking about source that we have a new source of life and power, and his name is Jesus, and he's one spirit with us. There is no Mr. Sin on the inside of us anymore. And we can see this truth in a few verses down, Romans 8, 9. This is Paul. He's trying to fix what he said, because it all sounds very confusing sometimes. You, however, are not in the flesh. 
but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We are not in the flesh, because flesh is Mr. Sin. <laughs> Mr. Sin does not live in us anymore. That's the old nature. Our source has been changed. There is no Mr. Sin in our nature anymore. We are in the Spirit. We are in Christ, and they are in us. In fact, we are one with Mr. Love himself, our Father. <laughs> love is our new nature. God, Mr. Love, or you could, we could call him Mr. Agape in the Greek, <laughs> God is love. That's who. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. And if that's who he is, then that's who we are. I have this in uh, 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. And I've added the agape, the word agape for us, because we have a tendency to think when someone says love, of natural human love. Natural human love can be very fickle. <laughs> I can love you today, but maybe not tomorrow. <laughs> that's not God. God's love is everlasting and faithful. And that's why I've added the, the actual Greek word for it, to just bring home the point. The Apostle John starts with beloved, identity, 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 identity. Who am I? I am beloved. I am my father's favorite. <laughs> Mark tells me, you can be God's favorite next week. <laughs> I'm going to be God's favorite this week. <laughs> no, we are his beloved. We are dearly loved. We are favored. Identity, identity, identity. Beloved, let us agape love one another. For agape love is of God, comes from him. And everyone that agape loveth is born of God and knoweth God. This also helps us understand that not everyone who loves in natural love is born of God. But everyone who loves with agape love is born of God and knows God. Verse 8. He that agape love not knoweth not God. For God is agape love. In this was manifested the agape love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And herein is agape love. Not that we agape loved God, but that he agape loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Our father is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. Period. We can add nothing to it. For years I spent an eternity, it seemed like, trying to become righteous by giving God time, giving God money, giving God, trying to ingratiate myself to God with fastings and prayers and confessions. And I didn't know that he was completely satisfied with the blood of Jesus on my behalf. Nothing else was required. So love, agape love, is now our new nature. It says we're born of him, we're born of love, love must be who we are. <laughs> because we are born of God himself. We have this infinite agape love. And through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have received his own infinite life placed in us. 
as well. And his own infinite value placed on us. Can you think of anyone that you'd be willing to give your children to? No, they're ours. <laughs> Can't have them, they're mine. That is the truth of, of how we love our children. They are our children, and we're not giving them up. That's how our Father thinks of us. No, you're mine. <laughs> you look just like me. <laughs> I see myself in you. You're adorable. <laughs> Amazing, infinite love and value that he has placed on us by giving us Christ. We have infinite value. We have no idea what we're going to be doing for in eternity. But God says we have eternal value to him and for him. We can see the reality of our new creation identity in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I have it in the Passion Translation. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above. For that's where Christ sits, at the place of all power, honor, and authority. Yes, feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with the heavenly realities and not with the distractions of the natural realm. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life, natural life, and now your true life is hidden away in God, in Christ. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed, for you are now one with him in glory. My brain wants to turn it into King James. <laughs> no, it's Passion Translation. <laughs> and as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed. For you are now, right now, not when we go to heaven, we are right now, one with him in his glory. So as we can see, we have already died <laughs> through the death of Jesus. And we have already been resurrected and restored to our Father's original plan for us. As infinitely loved and infinitely valued sons of God. But it is so easy for us to forget who we really are. Our natural thinking, our emotions and feelings can often override what we know is the truth about who we are. We can fall back into the old mindsets of believing that we are what we do or what we fail to do. If we fail, we believe we are failures. If we struggle with something, we believe we are powerless. We can find ourselves rejecting or at least doubting the truth about who God says we are. So we do need to continue to renew our minds by filling our thoughts with our heavenly realities and reminding ourselves that our true life is right now hidden away in God and in Christ. We are one with God through Christ. We are what he is. It wasn't our idea. It was his. He says, let me make you just like me. <laughs> we can live together for eternity, yes. In order to explain our oneness with Christ, the Apostle Paul uses marriage as an example in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, when marriage is done right, <laughs> each partner loves the other more than themselves, but not in place of themselves. 
There is a self-love. When I was putting this scripture in here, I was like, oh man, I hate to use this scripture <laughs> because you don't have the buildup. You don't have chapter one, two, three, and four to put context in about who we are and how wonderful God is and all that he's done and how he has rescued us and that we are in him and we have all the power of the Holy Spirit and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then this comes. <laughs> but people like to pull it out of context and make it say things that it doesn't say. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Unfortunately, religion thinks this is a rule, a law. <laughs> the husbands have to demand that their wives submit to them. Does Jesus demand that we submit to him? Funny thing, he never does, does he? <laughs> this speaks of a wife entrusting herself to her husband's love and care for her. When we submit to Christ, we voluntarily submit ourselves to what? To love, <laughs> to being loved, to be being taken care of, being adored and cherished. Yeah, this is not bad. <laughs> This is not a rule for someone to demand something of us. God doesn't even demand it of us. He knows a better way. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. In other words, there's still one. <laughs> Heads do not exist by themselves. <laughs> they are attached to the body. <laughs> So they are both dependent on each other. Husbands and wives need to depend on each other and work together in accordance with life-giving agape love. This is not a tyrant situation where women are slaves. It's explaining that a wife should be able to trust her husband to take his responsibility for taking care of her and leading her to voluntarily and lovingly cooperate with his efforts as a provider and protector. There's no demand. There's only supply. Verse 24. For even as the church is subject to Christ, how are we subject to Christ? Voluntarily and in love. In the same way, also let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Let's put this in some historical context. If you didn't have a husband, you were bad off. You're very bad off. You had no one to protect you. You had no one to provide for you. And you ended up destitute. Okay, it's not that way in our day and age. <laughs> so was it important for a wife to help her husband? <laughs> Let's face it. God said, boy, you need some help. <laughs> I'll give you somebody to help you. <laughs> But it is <laughs> all based in love, in agape love. Again, our relationship with Jesus is based on his love for us. Our relationship with our spouse is based on their love for us. That is how it works. If you don't love me, I can still love you, but it makes it hard. <laughs> Jesus has never made me do anything, ever. He's never actually even given me an order. 
my husband and I were teasing. I was talking to him about getting an ice cream maker for Christmas because I wanted to make keto ice cream. Non-dairy, non-sugar, right? <laughs> but all the recipes would call for vodka. <laughs> I don't drink. <laughs> I thought, I'm not sure I want alcohol in my ice cream. <laughs> and my husband, being funny, said, I forbid you to buy alcohol. I said, Oh, no, you don't, Mr. Testerman. <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I were you, because <laughs> you ain't not my boss. <laughs> so he pretended to be all upset. <laughs> Unfortunately, way too many people do live that way, trying to take dominion over each other, trying to be the boss of each other. And the whole point of marriage is let me love you. Young people get married and they think, this is what I get. Yes, you get to die. <laughs> you get to love me. <laughs> and I get to die and love you. It's all about agape love. What is really good about Jesus as our husband is that he is very good at persuading my heart to submit to his leading. He doesn't push me around, ever. My mom was a yeller. <laughs> growing up. <laughs> so you got yelled at all the time. You got yelled at when you were good. You got yelled at when you were bad. You was always yelling. <laughs> Jesus never yells. Ever. Ever. Corrects? Yes. Shows me how this is not working and this way will. <laughs> yes. Ordering me around like a servant? No. Verse 25. Husbands, love your own wives in the same way that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There's no way you can do it. <laughs> There's no way a man can love his own wife the exact same way Jesus Christ loves us. But that's the inspiration. This is what he says. I want you to set your heart on loving her, <laughs> accepting her, taking care of her, the same way Jesus Christ loves and takes care of the church. Jesus laid down his life for us. And that is our example. That's what love does. Love lays down the flesh head and says, loving you is my goal. Doing you good is my goal. And when both people are doing it, <laughs> it works wonderfully. Jesus gave his life to demonstrate how loved we are as his bride. Husbands are to know and experience this love for themselves first. That's what the first three and four chapters are about, knowing who we are and what, what our Father and our Jesus has empowered us with. They are to experience this love for them first so that they can live out of that love and demonstrate that kind of love to their bride. Verse 26, So that he, Jesus, might sanctify, set apart, unto himself in everything, having cleansed it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it might be holy and without blame. In the same way, husbands are duty-bound to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here we see the oneness of a husband and wife. A man cannot love his wife without simultaneously loving himself. This principle is true for us. As we love Jesus, 
we are simultaneously loving ourselves. Our love for Jesus is simply our response to his love for us. He loved us first. And as we begin to see who we really are in Christ and how much he loves us, we will simultaneously begin to love who we really are. Because we're awesome. <laughs> we're awesome because we're one with Jesus. It was awesome. <laughs> Many of us have accepted false identities that have convinced us that we aren't lovable, that we aren't valuable. People and circumstances and even Satan have planted lies within our hearts regarding who and what we are. And God has designed us in such a way that when we believe those lies about our identity or about God's identity, those lies cause us emotional pain and negative feelings. Lies hurt. Always. But we don't have to accept what other people say about us or what our circumstances are trying to convince us. Hardship and trials, they try to say, see, God doesn't love you. See, you're not valuable. Lies. But we don't have to accept what other people say or what the circumstances are trying to scream at us or even what Satan whispers to us in our ears regarding our failures. We can choose to believe what our Heavenly Father says about us. We are infinitely loved and infinitely valued by our Father and our Jesus. Verse 29. For no man hath ever hated his own flesh, his physical body, <laughs> but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord does the church. Humans, we naturally like to pamper our bodies. We like to feed them when they're hungry. <laughs> Let them sleep when they're sleepy. We like to take care of our body. And that's appropriate. And his point is, Love doesn't hate. We automatically love and preserve our own physical bodies. We don't ever hate our physical body by itself. Now, women in particular <laughs> may take exception to this, for no woman has ever hated her own flesh. Usually not true, because it's about identity. Women look in mirrors and they say, mm, you should be taller. <laughs> mm, you should be prettier. You should be curvier. You should be. You should be. And men are really less likely to do this. <laughs> it's just the way we're made. <laughs> They're less likely to hate their physical bodies and the way they look. You can ask any big hunking, you know, big guy. He's crazy about himself. <laughs> they have a really easy way of accepting themselves for who they are, generally speaking. But women, generally speaking, have a harder time accepting what we look like. So his point here is that as a man normally takes care of his human body and cherishes it, even so the Lord does the church. And this is really important for us as women and men to cherish our body, to accept it, to love it, to nourish it properly, <laughs> as if it is, in fact, the Lord's possession. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bone. And for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what God does through the marriage covenant, intimacy, and agape love. He glues a husband and a wife together 
so that they're no longer just two people who live together. God does something mysterious, something supernatural. The two become one. They see themselves as belonging to each other. They find that they love their spouse more than they love themselves. They like to see their spouse happy more than they like to make themselves happy. They see themselves as we instead of me. Their identity changes from single to married, from alone to together. And this is the example of what God does to us in Christ. We truly become one with him in spirit and in love and in covenant. He has chosen us to be his bride. And as a really good husband, he has taken the responsibility to lead us and guide us into all that he has already provided for us. He has revealed the truth of who we really are in him and to him. And yes, this was confusing. Even the Apostle Paul said so. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. <laughs> How God does this is astounding. But he's, and he says, but I am speaking in respect to Christ and the church. He used marriage as the example. The example when it's done right. He says this is a great mystery. That God can take two and join them together in such a way that they become one. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife even as himself, and let each wife see that she reverence her husband. Again, we see loving self. <laughs> we don't stop loving who we are. For most human beings, that's where the difficulty lies. We think there's something wrong with who we are. There's not. We need to change our mind. So, how do we love ourselves? told you I'd get there eventually. <laughs> we love ourselves by accepting the truth of who God says we are. Stop arguing with him. <laughs> you are holy. You are righteous. You are deeply loved. You are. We are one with him, and as we discover his infinite love for us and our infinite value to him, our hearts will automatically respond to his love. And the more we see the real us, the us that is righteous and holy and completely accepted and unconditionally loved, we will accept the truth of who we are and stop fighting with ourselves. And we will find that loving him automatically causes us to love ourselves. It's just like the man who already loves his wife. He can't love his wife and not be loving himself at the same time because that love automatically comes back to him. When we love Jesus, we love ourselves. The believer who loves Jesus will find that they already actually love themselves. They just need to have their identity revealed to them. We are what he says we are. We are perfect. We are holy. We are righteous. We are beautiful. We are all the things that Jesus is. And the more we see that and accept it, that that's the truth, that's what we'll live out. We only live out of what we really believe. So our identity is really important. We must understand that God so loved us that he gave his son to put an end to Mr. Sin <laughs> and to raise us to his new life, to be his bride, to be one with him because he wanted to love us and take care of us all the days of our life. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word 
Father, we thank you that when we look at it through the lens of your grace, through the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, we can better see what it is the authors of the scriptures were trying to relate to us. We thank you, Father God, that love is our new identity. Love and beloved. You have supplied the love. You have supplied the power. You have supplied everything we need for life and godliness to be able to walk in this world just like Jesus, walking in love above all else. So, Father God, I ask that you remind us in the coming week that we are dearly loved, that we can trust you to take care of us. We can trust you to baby us. We can trust you to reveal yourself to us in all kinds of loving ways. We thank you, Father God, that we have the right to love who we are, to love who you created us to be, and to begin to appreciate who you are in us and through us because you have designed us uniquely to be who we are in you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.